listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. As our uh, choir and worship team get off the stage, before I start the sermon, um, I, I want to lead us a little bit in some prayer. Um, and here's why. Our community around us is hurting. Um, uh, Mary Moore had a student who was in fifth grade walking home, and on Thursday uh, got hit by a car and died. Her name is Gracie. We've reached out to Mary Moore. We're offering as many services as we can. We want to be as available as we can. Mandy, our children's director, has done a tremendous job just trying to follow up and see if there's anything that we can do practically. But because our community's hurting, we're hurting as well. And uh, it might not feel like there's a lot of practical things that we can do. The very least, if not maybe even the most potent thing we can do, is as a community we can pray. And so I want us to do that this morning. Um, as we just kind of refocus uh, our hearts on the power and the strength of the resurrected Christ and his mercy in the most traumatic and trying of times, family and all those involved are going to need that now more than ever. And so um, if you could just bow your heads, still your hearts, um, and just allow your uh, desires and focus to just even in your own hearts be praying for Gracie and her family, that would be tremendous. And then I will close us off in just a minute. So please, just as a moment of silence in your own attuning to God, can we just flood heaven with our prayers for Gracie and her family? Father, we recognize that we are incapable of providing hope and wisdom and advice on what to do next in the midst of an incredibly horrific and tragic event. You are the source of hope, the, the only source. And so, Father, I pray in the midst of just this devastation and darkness that could consume Gracie's family, would you intrude with light wherever it comes from through the truth of your word or through the assembling of God's people. Father, we pray that you would just be the source of hope and comfort in the most tragic and trying of times. I'm told that Gracie knew you and so her freedom and joy in heaven is unmatched by anything that she could feel on this earth. But for those left behind, putting the pieces back together seem almost impossible to know what those next steps are. So Father, would you allow them to borrow strength and faith from others that are around them, even use us in whatever way you see fit to, to be a source of hope and strength for them. But God, I pray most importantly that in the stillness of those nights and even in the midst of the Christmas season and all of the things that just seem to be broken and devastated, would you intrude? Would you provide your presence in real and tangible ways? Her family, extended family, friends, 
people at Mary Moore in our community know your love in a real way this season that would anchor them in the most difficult of moments. We trust you for this. We believe that you are working and we have confidence that you are bigger than anything. But God, we need that confidence now as much as her family and friends do as well. So God, we just surrender this situation to you and ask that you would work in the mighty name of Jesus to bring healing and grace and mercy in the most dark of times. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for allowing us that space to do that as a community of faith. Um, I will certainly keep you posted should we know of other practical things we might be able to do. Um, I will certainly reach out, and I know that every single one of you would love the opportunity to figure out a way that we could tangibly help the family. Um, And so if I hear of anything, please know that I'll, I'll pass that information along. So we've been journeying together in our Advent season through the book of Luke, um, just to bring many of you up to speed, there's a few things that we've, we've done, and, and the first message was really just about why jump into this story, it seems so familiar, and yet when we're reminded of the story, it, it generates in us a sense of just God's sovereignty and provision and grace, and in the moments of that seem in the most challenging of times and the most hopeful of times, and, and just life, God is working, and so Remembering the story is something that's just critical for us. It, it gives us a, a view of God's character that sometimes we miss. And then that next week was the conversation about what we do as we remember the story, we respond in faith. We begin to understand that through the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, the interesting part of God's unfolding his plan at this point is that at this juncture, It's not a worldwide, universal, global declaration, right? It's so intriguing to me that as we look through the Christmas story, the starting of hope was generated by just a few people in a small place that just didn't feel like they were as likely to be those who were being used by God as anyone else. Zechariah does his job. He's finally chosen to go in and offer prayers and burn uh, incense at the altar, and, and an angel comes, Gabriel, and speaks to him and, and actually gives him hope. And that hope is that the very thing that him and Elizabeth had been praying for for decades was actually going to come true. It's, it's as though you could see even in his response that it, it seemed unlikely. You, you ever pray those prayers? That you've prayed for something for so long that you're sure that God is withholding it from you, that if he actually gave it to you, you'd be shocked that it actually came from God. That's the situation with Zechariah. Remember, his name means God remembers. So his whole life was just this understanding that God remembers, remembers his word, remembers his promises, remembers his people. God is working in, in incredible ways and so often we can't see. And so these prayers that had been uttered over decades did not fall on deaf ears. God had a plan, and he had a time. And in the process of that timing, he was working, and even in the midst of that God preparing and Gabriel showing up and and this promise being given to Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah's first response is, don't think this is gonna work, right? 
my, my wife's a bit old, kind of, is what the Bible says. And so here's this sense that he's looking from a very earthly view about the provisions of God. And, 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 and the best that we can understand is that his response was not one of faith, but pragmatism. It, I've prayed for this for a long time. And now that my wife is as old as she is, now you answer? It doesn't, I, why not earlier? Right? When she was young and I was young, it would have been great but you waited. And so in the process of that, what ends up happening is Zechariah becomes mute. This is a preacher not being able to talk, right? This is, this is a kind of a big deal, right? So basically, the angel of the Lord says, Gabriel says, look, you're not going to be able to talk for the entire pregnancy. All of the words and the, the tender moments and the whispers of love and affection to your wife can utter a word. Maybe write it on a tablet, but it doesn't feel like that's going to be awesome intimacy, but you can't say anything. Throughout the whole nine months of the pregnancy, nothing is going to be uttered by Zechariah. And you wonder if Elizabeth is thankful for that. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe not. Maybe so. It's hard to tell. But at the end of the day, you find yourself realizing that the events are continuing to unfold. And so that's happening. And then Mary's involved. And Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to a son. And you're going to give him the name Jesus. Because he's going to save his people from their sin. And so you get all of these things happening in these small pockets of the world where there hasn't been this really life-altering or universal transformation. Everybody in the world is unaware that these things are going on. There's a small subset of people in a small community that are aware that something's happening. But it's limited. It's limited to these few people and those people that know them. And it's just, God is just doing things and it's just unfolding. It's not skywriting. It's, it's God fulfilling his promises through his people, which is what he always does. And so in the process of those things now, you get this story. So Mary had this song last week. This, it's called the Magnificat. And she's just sharing about the, the blessings of what God is doing through her. Who It just feels so unlikely, and yet, yet God is going to work. And, and the question for last week that Jared asked that I think is maybe one of those poignant questions that we can ask during Christmas. Why me? And the answer is because you're loved. Right? So we look back in our lives and we think of all of the things that are going on in the context of our lives. And sometimes we ask, why me? When we look at the trauma and the challenges and the struggles that you and I face. But, but most poignant, we look at our lives and we say, you know, God has been so rich and so gracious and so good to us. Why? What did I do to merit God's care and concern for me? And the answer is nothing. God loves you and has pursued you in real and tangible ways. He sees you, specifically you. And has seen you from the foundations of the world, that he knew you and me before we were in our mother's womb, that there's a, a plan that God is orchestrating in the context of human history. And for some crazy reason, you and I are a part of it. A beautiful story of just this tender innocence of Mary responding. And, and her response to God is, have your way. Your will, my desire. Whatever you want, I'm in, is basically the Greek translation, just so you know. Um, but, but there's just that sense of knowing that she's willing, that her lives in the hand, her life in the hands of God is so much better than her life controlled by herself. 
And so she surrenders. God, whatever you want. And there are enormous implications that take place in the context of her life and all of these things that are happening. And there's stories of Joseph and all of his struggles in the midst of those things. But God's will, God's way is always better than my will, my way. Always. And Christmas reminds us of that. And so now, after nine months, theoretically, in eight days, John is getting ready to be born and be circumcised. And finally, after all of that time, which Zechariah hasn't been able to utter a word, he speaks. What would you say if you had not been able to speak for nine months things that you wouldn't be able to tell your spouse or your community or the people around you, words that would not have been able to be spoken, what would be the first words out of your mouth? We get that window in Zachariah's life. Years ago, I was uh, uh, worked in construction, and it's an industry where you wake up early in the morning and you're, you're building homes, you're renovating homes, but they have a, a term that we always used to use when we were doing renovation. And that term was, we're going to take the house down to the studs, which meant that you were pulling everything out so you could see all of the different intricacies of what's going on and what needed to be fixed. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that as we look at Zachariah's prophecy, the words that he uttered, it's because over those nine months, his life was taken down to the studs. That there was that communication, even though vocally he wouldn't be able to utter words, you know that there were conversations happening between him and God. His life was taken down to the studs. It was laid bare before the God of the universe. And in the process of all of those things, there were things that were taking place and changes and corrections and life as a whole was being fundamentally re-renovated in his own heart. His life was taken down to the studs. And so what were his observations? What did he see about God that he had missed before? As a priest doing ministry year after year, seeking God's favor over the context of his people, what were aspects of God's character that he had either not remembered or had forgotten or had just become so stale in his life that needed reignition? When his life was taken down to the studs, what did he come across with? What, did he, what were his applications? I'm going to suggest to you this morning that through the context of his prophecy, there are four things that were reminders, anchors, places that he needed to understand and be revitalized inside his own heart that I think are the very things that you and I need reminders of on a daily basis, especially during this Christmas season. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to open them, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. So there's a little backdrop here, right? He's going to give us a little narrative of kind of the events going on, and, and I want you to just think about kind of, kind of this exciting uh, hustle and bustle of all these things happening in this small little community, and that you have a few nosy neighbors that are kind of interested about what's going on. You have people that really want to offer their opinions about what you should do. If anyone's ever had kids or had something big go on in their life, you ever have a neighbor come over and just offer you advice on what you should do? That's what's happening in the beginning of these verses. Look with me in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her 
had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced. Now, I need to stop there real quick, because often when we look at this, one of the things that we focus on is this idea of great mercy. And when we say that, we say, okay, that must mean both quality and quantity, that there's just a huge amount of mercy that has been shown to her in the birth of this child. The, the focus of this adjective, this idea of great, is actually not focused on the word mercy. It's actually focused on the giver. It's actually focused on God. The whole utterance of these things as these things are transpiring and people are talking about what's going on, they're attributing the mercy not to itself as being great or having quality or quantity. It's to God himself, that he's the great one who is the giver of mercy. And I think that's critical for us as we think about even our story unfolding is that there are so often things that we want to feel and we want mercy and we want it to be large and we want the quality and the quantity and yet the reality is is that you already have that in Christ. He's the giver. He is the one that is great and the great one gives great mercy all the time every time, inexhaustibly. There is not a moment where God's mercy because of his greatness will be extinguished or we will need too much of it. It will not ever run out. And so as people are watching this thing happen, unfold in Zachariah and Elizabeth's life, here's what ends up happening. They're like, man, this is incredible. What a great giver of mercy. Both quality and quantity, it's never enough. God is so good. Because the great one gives great mercy. Okay, that's my tangent. Now, 59. And on the eighth day, which is the day that they do the circumcision, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father. So the tradition is that you name your firstborn son after someone who's in the family. Likely Zachariah or another relative that has renown and prestige. But that's not what God told him to do. And so now you get all these people having these expectations of what Zachariah and Elizabeth should do. But the mother answered, no, he shall be called John. God is gracious. That's what John means. God is gracious. Verse 61, and they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. You know, nosy neighbors, right? This is not a bad, it's not a good move. Like you only got one kid and you're going to blow it on day eight. Come on, don't do it right? All of your friends are saying, don't do it. Why would you do that? But the father was actually the one in charge of naming the child. And they made signs to his father inquiring what they wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. (laughs) This is just the greatest thing. A little pad of paper and a piece of chalk. I don't know what it was, but it's cool. Like here, here it is. Tell me what this kid's name is. He asked and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. They all were just gobsmacked, dumbfounded at the reality of what absolutely could be happening, even in John's name. This child that had been promised to Elizabeth and Zechariah, that had been given to him in an old age, that the angel Gabriel had said, God is going to do this for you, that the great God, who is the giver of great mercy, has given you these things, and you're going to name him. God is gracious. Of course you are. Because that's true, right? The the very reality of who John is was to direct attention to the God of the universe, to prepare a way for the Savior of the world. Of course, God is gracious. Of course, his name will be John. 
So as he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John, they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth, Zachariah's mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke. He spoke. First word in theoretically nine months and eight days, he spoke. And what does it tell us he did? Blessed God. Right, the, the, the reality of his life being taken down to the studs and God doing the deepest work in his soul in the midst of all of these things that seemed inexplicable, prayers that had been finally answered, and all of the things, even his minuscule faith of not believing that this was actually God, even responding to the angel Gabriel and not sure that this made the most sense. When his life was taken down to the studs and there was nothing left but God, what did he have? He came to the reality that the first words that he would speak would be those that would bless God. And how did the noisy neighbors respond? Fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all of the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them, on, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So now you're getting a chance to be able to see that things are unfolding. The ability to contain the miraculous work of God to Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and extended family and neighbors is now moving its way outside of Judea. That they're seeing miraculous, inexplicable works of God doing things that they can not contain and not measure, but they have to talk about it. They are so in awe of what God has done that they cannot help but share the reality of what God has been doing all along. You can sense in this text just a, a sense of excitement, urgency. Even in the midst of some level of uncertainty, there is something going on, and it seems as though they want to be part of it. That's Christmas. There's something going on. And if you're not willing to answer, I'll answer for you. You want to be part of it. Trust me. You want to be part of what God's doing. There are amazing, unique, miraculous things that God is doing in the most amazing of ways. And, and so we're going to see in Zechariah's prophecy or his, his blessing to God the four things that he saw about God when his life was taken down to the studs. Look with me in verses 67 and 68. Here's what he says. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God, the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The push in Zechariah's prophecy, the, the very first words that he uttered are that God, the Lord of Israel, has visited and redeemed his people. God has carefully planned and graciously freed his people. The very thing that he began to see when his life was taken down to the studs, that God is working underneath the walls of our lives even when we don't think he is. There are things that are taking place, and those things are God visiting us with his presence and freeing us from our sin. That he is redeeming, transforming, changing, allowing us to feel accepted and understood by the God of the universe. That 
all of the past history, all of those faith failures that mark our journey, all of the bad decisions, there's a reality of what God is doing and working, and the invitation is he is visiting you with his presence and redeeming you from your slavery. How? Well, it's going to get to the reality of what what John is doing in setting the stage for Christ himself, which is the only way that we can feel visited by God and redeemed, that the presence of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us is what we know to how God is visiting and redeeming us. But God is carefully planning and graciously freeing us. Anchor point number one. Like when we think about all of the winds that blow in our life that seek to push us over, would this not be a place that we would want to remind ourselves of? That we would want the word to remind ourselves of? That we would need the Holy Spirit to apply to our life? God graciously plans and generously frees us. When your life and my life is taken down to the studs, would, would this be the very thing that we would begin to learn and understand. I don't know how many of you celebrate small victories. Um, It probably comes in numerous different ways, but it happened to me this week. So I don't know. I get really excited about getting really cheap gas. I don't know what it is. It's my issue, but I'm excited about it. Like there's something where I just want to celebrate in the most real and significant. So I have an app, 7-Eleven app, 17 cents off. (laughs) Tell you what. So I got gas for $2.10 a gallon. I filled up my truck for under 40 bucks for the first time in months. I drive out a 7-Eleven like I'm the king of the universe. Like this is like the best thing ever. So excited about this small little thing. I'm ready to text Aaron and be like, can't believe how much money I saved you. Aren't you so proud? This is the greatest thing. What a great day. Small victories. We have those small victories that happen in numerous ways in life. Just those little places where you find excitement. You know your kids do something special and you're excited or something just happens in your home or something happens at work or your job. It's just small little victories. Fun to celebrate those things. Humorous at times, but just fun. And yet what Zachariah comes to the conclusion of when his life is taken back down to the studs is that there the victory, the most important victory of all of life that probably didn't really affect his emotions or all of the excitement that God had generated in his life was lost in the challenges in which he faced in the context of his life in ministry. We can celebrate small victories, but what Zachariah is telling us in the prophecy in these next few verses is that there's a major victory that demands celebration every day, a huge victory. Look with me, if you will, in verse 69. Here's what he says. Not only did God bless, be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people, but look what it says. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we would be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers to be remember, and to remember his holy covenant and the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. You can see that as Zachariah's life is taken down to the studs, one of the things that comes to this recognition, this 
a reminder of his own life, not only the anchor point that God is graciously planning and generously freeing, but at the end of the day, God has secured for us a decisive victory. God has accomplished something that could never be accomplished if not from him. And that victory is what? Salvation. The very reality that you and I don't need to be the ones that are orchestrating, controlling, and de- being the ones that are decisive on what happens in our life. Much like Mary, there's this surrender of saying, God, your will, your way. Whatever you say, I'm in. Because I trust that you have not only secured for me hope of eternity, but salvation, meaning I'm rescued from my sin. I've got intimacy and connection with the God of the universe, the God who is the author of all wisdom, who knows all things, and who has a plan. Who else am I going to trust? I mean, really. Do I think that I'm the one that's a better director of my own life than the God who created me? Well, the answer, of course, is no. And yet daily, on a regular basis, we're picking up our lives and thinking, God, I appreciate all you've done for me, but I think I got this one. You don't got it. Neither do I. What we have ourselves is standing before the God of the universe, realizing that he has accomplished for us a decisive victory that is found in his son. You have been secured an open, promised relationship with the God of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. Because God has always had a plan, and he's always graciously freeing. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are free. And in the midst of that freedom, you can celebrate not just the small victories in life, but the only victory that really matters. The victory over sin. The victory over our enemies. Enemies being all those things that are seeking to pull us away from our walk with the Lord. Those things that are continuing to contribute and become obstacles. Those areas that continue to, to, to hold us back from just pressing into our relationship with God. Whether it's pride or addiction. We can name whatever it might be. But anchor point number four, or anchor point number two, is when Zachariah's life was taken out of the studs. He came to the realization that God had secured for him an eternal victory. And, and the result is we can serve God without fear. I love that. That there's a reality that I don't need to be crippled by the worries of what's going to happen in the world around me or the voices that I might hear from what people might say or the events that might transpire in the context of this world, I can serve Jesus without fear because I know that he has a gracious, generous plan, that he is graciously freeing me, that he's accomplished a victory. I've got no one else to trust because there's no one better. He is the only one worthy, and he's invited me into his presence. So here are the the two final ones that I think are just critical for us to remember, and then I'll finish up. Verses 76 and 77 says this, And you, child, you will be called the prophet, and he's talking about John here, of the Most High, and for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So how's John going to prepare the ways for people to understand who Jesus is? Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The simple reality of the gospel during Christmas when Zachariah's life is taken down to the studs, the very thing that he wants to communicate is the reality of what God is going to do through his son John. That God is gracious and the work that John's going to do is to till the soil. And here's what he's going to tell people. That the Lord is at work. He is here. Jesus is the promised Messiah. The knowledge of salvation. You will know 
that God has visited and redeemed his people because he will forgive them of their sins. The very ministry that Jesus accomplished on this earth, the very death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was for that end, that you and I would know the forgiveness of sins, that we would find ourselves realizing the significance that God has removed the stain of sin on our lives. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been cleansed, washed, freed. Zechariah comes to these conclusions as he anchors his life and prophesies about the future of which you and I are now living. The very future that Zechariah is prophesying about, you are looking back on. It's not looking forward to. Jesus has come. Jesus has been born. Jesus has died on the cross. He died innocent. The punishment of our sin was laid upon him. He was buried and rose again on the third day. It has happened. Do you believe? That's the invitation of what Zachariah is basically moving us towards, is where do you stand? When your life and my life is taken down to the studs, are these the reminders that are going to reverberate inside of our souls? That God is planning amazing things and graciously freeing us from sin. That God has accomplished victory and that he's removed the stain of sin on our life. And then finally, the fourth one, and I love how the prophecy finishes because it reminds us of the very great mercy or the great giver of great mercy from the beginning of this text. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender, tender, what a word. The mercy of God is absolutely sharp and tactical and sanctifying and transforming, but it's always from a tender hand of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. For what purpose? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. God brings a new day. And as he works in our life and changes the very things about us, when our lives are taken down to the studs, we begin to realize the light of God in our lives, and that light is not just for us. It's for all of those who sit in darkness. Is that a fairly accurate descriptor of our world? Maybe. Seems like it to me. All of us trying to figure out how to manage the life around us and the circumstances, our, our world continuing to seemingly spiral into places of self-sufficiency and self-reliance, doing whatever they want and thinking that it's good and baptizing some sort of ridiculous moral code under whatever's best and tolerant for them. Darkness. But the goal is not to sit there and say, hey, look how terrible you are. No, it's to say, those who sit in darkness, what do they need? Light. The same thing you and I need. When we find ourselves realizing that the gracious, generous gifts of God through faith in Jesus Christ are what give us the very things that we need, the very strength that God has provided for us because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the question of Christmas. Is not, are any of these things true or untrue? I believe wholeheartedly and stake my life on the fact that every word is true. The question is, 
Do you believe? <laughs> Do the people around you know the reality of God carefully planning and graciously freeing? That he's accomplished a victory. They don't have to live in darkness. That there is an invitation to light, to hope, and to peace, and to grace that is unimaginable. It is the very thing that they're searching for that they will never find without Jesus. And that's our world. Searching, but never finding. So during this Christmas, would you tell someone about Jesus? This amazing reality of this graciously great God who's giving great mercy to all who desire to turn to him. This free invitation that's extended that only needs to be accepted. Do you believe? I think that's the question. And as Zechariah comes to the conclusion of his life and the very first words that he utters as his life is taken down to the studs, I have a great God who gives great mercy and is willing to allow my life to be taken down to the studs so that I see him for who he truly is, not who I thought he was. Will you pray with me? Father, we do desire to be those people who bless your name. I admit, sometimes it's a lot harder than others. I want to, to profess your goodness in every moment of life. That no matter what happens or the things that are said or the craziness of the world around me, you are that which keeps me on course. You are the bearing that I need to focus on what is real and true and accurate with all of the lies and the deception around me. But God, I do confess that often I, I have forgotten the very anchors that you have given Zechariah. You were just graciously freeing us from sin, that you have a, a plan, that you have accomplished salvation, that you have removed my stain of sin. You've dawned a new day. May I be that which exposes and communicates that light to the world around me.